Hi everybody and welcome to this first installment of Meet the Linguist. In uh, this series of podcasts I want to introduce you um, real linguists who are working on real topics in linguistics. And today uh, we have um, a great, great, great friend of mine, um, Yvonne Fambal. I hope that I have pronounced the Fambal correctly. Um, you know, I have some Dutch um, knowledge, but not that much. So I hope that the F sound was, was okay. Really good. Well done. Thank you very much. Um, okay. Yvonne has um, recently got her PhD from the University of Oslo and unfortunately I was in Germany for a conference and I couldn't attend her defense so today I have the chance to hear from her about this beautiful project that she had and she had completed. Um, her thesis is called Compositional Definiteness in American Heritage Norwegian. But before talking about this I'm very curious about your background. So why did you start um, studying linguistics? Well, I originally started studying Dutch language and literature at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And then you have courses in um, linguistics, in literature and in rhetorics. And originally I thought I would be most interested in literature. You know, I loved reading and I loved books. And I still love reading and I still love books, but the literature study was not that intriguing to me. And I was mostly interested actually in the linguistics courses when we learned about, you know, structures that are behind the everyday language that you observe. And all of a sudden we were asking these big questions about language. So language is there all the time, but then there were questions like, how do languages differ from each other and how are they alike and how do kids acquire language that happens kind of magically um, so my first plan of studying Dutch language and literature and becoming a journalist um, soon changed into the plan of just studying linguistics and finding out what language actually is so the, the situation in the Netherlands seems to be very similar to the one in Italy. We don't have like a bachelor degree in linguistics. We have like humanities in which you have one or two exams in, in linguistics, of general linguistics, for example. Do you think that um, it would be cool to have like a, a bachelor degree in linguistics or like if university could pay more attention since the bachelor uh, level for programs in linguistics? Well, we actually do have a, a bachelor program in linguistics as well. But um, when I did my master's in linguistics, we actually had many people who started from studying a language. So who started Dutch like I did or English or a foreign language and then found out that they were actually interested in linguistics more than one particular language. So we have a bachelor's program in linguistics, but it might actually be cool if high schools could pay more attention to the linguistics side of language and not just learn grammar and um, read literature in a foreign language. Then maybe people would realize earlier how much interested they are in linguistics. Cool. So you told us um, about this um, strong interest about language, but what was the reason that pushed you to pursue 
um, a PhD in Norway specifically. Yeah, so I found out quite quickly that doing research was lots of fun. And as a linguist, the best way of doing research is getting your PhD, because that gives you three or four years with just doing research. Um, but when I graduated from my MA program, the possibilities in Amsterdam were very limited. And I decided that I needed a little bit of a break. So I started doing something else for one year and in the meantime looking for jobs. And then Norway kind of was a coincidence. Um, I never thought Norway is the ultimate goal. I just wanted a very cool project. And in the end, that project happened to be in Oslo. And I thought, well, why not? Oslo looks like a nice city. Norway is a nice country to live. So let's give it a try and move up there. That's, that's good. How was moving uh, to Norway? I mean, the Netherlands and uh, Norway are n geographically uh, not very far away. Uh, probably, do you feel there is a, a shared northern feeling? I speak as an Italian and a pure Mediterranean, so I'm curious <laughs> about this. Well, it was, it was scary to move, just because when I moved here there were like three or four people that I knew in Oslo and I only met them a few times. So it was scary but um, Norway is not that much different from the Netherlands and um, I have to say though that before I moved people warned me that Norwegians are very distant people and that's not at all my experience at least at my department where everyone was really welcoming and taking you know taking good care of me and showing me the city and explaining me how Norway works. Um, so it was scary to move, but the countries are not that different that it was a huge difference. It's just moving abroad that was the, the big step, but Norway wasn't particularly difficult, I think. Okay. Um, I want to remind our speakers, our listeners, that the tourist office uh, of Norway is not paying us. We deeply love Norway, so that's yes, we do. pure <laughs> intentions here. Um, but of course, when you moved, you um, you had or probably you wanted to learn the language, Norwegian, right? Yes, so I didn't know any Norwegian when I applied for my job. Um, but I knew I would need it um, because I'm not just going to move to Norway, but I was also going to do research on the Norwegian language. So then you need to know a little bit of Norwegian. Sure, and, and now we're going to go directly on to your uh, research project, Great. which um, I want to I wanna, um, give you some pressure. Would you, would you be able to define your project in less than two minutes? How would, you, how would you describe your project in, let's say, a couple of sentences? So, this is hard. And if you count thinking time into the two minutes, it might actually be really difficult. But I'll, I'll give it a try. So what I try to do in my project, um, very often when we describe languages, we describe them in the way they are spoken by ideal speaker, as we call it. So someone who knows that language perfectly, um, has been educated in that language, um, often also is a monolingual speaker of that language. But actually very many speakers of languages are not those ideal speakers. Um, and there are many pe people who speak a language as one of the languages that they speak. So they are bilingual or multilingual. And 
this is a point where we see a lot of variation. So we see variation um, between monolingual and bilingual speakers of a language. And within bilingual speakers, we see also a lot of um, what we call inter or intra-speaker variation. So within one single speaker. And um, in my project, I tried to describe this um, variation or these differences between monolingual Norwegian, as it is spoken in Norway, and people who live in the United States, grew up in the United States, but learned Norwegian um, in their childhood. Yeah. It seems like a very fitting description. Uh, thank, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so, as I as I read from your um, from your title of your dissertation, you are dealing with um, American Heritage Norwegian. And we have to um, probably tell our listeners that there was a a strong immigration flow from the uh, from the Kingdom of Norway into the United States, as it happened uh, for many countries, and um, there is a strong community, or probably there was a strong community of Norwegians and, of course, Norwegian speakers in the United States. Um, where are they, and what kind of people are they? Yeah, so you're right. Just like many um, European countries, Norway had a huge migration from Norway to the United States, um, especially in the 19th century. Um, but actually, in Norway, if you look at not the total amount of people, but the percentage of a country's population that moved, then Norway actually is the country with the second highest migration rate from all European countries. Only from Ireland, a greater percentage of the population moved to the United States. Um, and we're talking about, um, I think about 850,000 people um, in really total. Much. And that is um, a lot if you compare it to Norway's population size at that time. So where did they go? They mainly, well, they first went through New York. Um, mm -hmm. Later, some people moved in through Canada, but typically through New York, and then on to the Midwest. Because um, in the Midwest, so we're talking states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, Iowa, they have great opportunities for farming. And um, in the United States, in I think 1862, there is a um, law that is called the Homestead Act, which made it possible for immigrants to get farmland for free. So they would get land and it would be free as long as they would make farms and, you know, um, grow crops and have cows and everything. So that was a great opportunity for many people from rural Norway to move to the United States and get um, a life that was socially better than what they had in Norway. Um, and as you said, there were large communities because, you know, if you're moving, um, we both know moving countries is difficult, but if you think of um, 1880, when it was much more difficult and much more um, a final step to move. You wouldn't come back. It would be hard to stay in touch. So where would you go? You would go to a place where there's fellow countrymen, places where you might even speak Norwegian. So many of these Norwegians, they settled together. They built their communities. They had Norwegian-speaking churches. And they had Norwegian newspapers. And in those areas in the Midwest where they had such really strong communities, we still find speakers that, of American Norwegian. So um, they're all old people, unfortunately, um, and usually it's their grandparents or great-grandparents who moved from Norway to the United States. And these old people are actually teaching Norwegian to their, I don't know, uh, families, or are they like uh, 
last generation of speakers? They are the last generation of speakers. So sometimes we meet someone who is 72 that speaks Norwegian and we are very happy because that is a young person for okay. us. Um, and of course sometimes their children <clears throat> understand a bit of Norwegian um, but the generation that actually has an active command of speaking Norwegian is now um, elderly, so they're plus 80. Um, and actually it's, it's quite typical in immigration groups, not just the Norwegians that went to the US, but in general, that after a few generations, people in the family switch to the majority language of the country, and they give up speaking their heritage or family language from home. So it's not that strange that it happens. It's just unfortunate for us researchers. Yeah, I can understand that. But, um, of course, you, you had the chance to meet these people uh, because uh, Yvonne actually went to the United States to collect data. And, um, of course, you couldn't describe everything uh, uh, about this, this American heritage Norwegian. You selected a specific um, feature of Norwegian, namely compositional definiteness, and now we're going to uh, talk about this. And you wanted to, let's say, compare and contrast how uh, this phenomenon um, um, presented itself in, in mainland uh, Norwegian and uh, how it is maintained or uh, modified in uh, uh, American heritage uh, speakers. So, first of all, uh, for those um, for those listeners who uh, probably do not have um, a great um, knowledge of Norwegian grammar, what is compositional definiteness and um, what are the main features of this phenomenon? So first, um, we call a phrase definite when in English you would combine <coughs> it with the article the. So in English you make a distinction between the car or a car. So if you haven't introduced a topic, you would say, I saw a car on the street. But if you've talked a lot about it, or you all know that we're talking about cars, I can say the car of my neighbor, or just the car. And we know what we're talking about. Um, so that's what we call definiteness marking. And in Norwegian, those definite article, the, that is not um, in front of the noun, like in English, when you say the car, but it's actually after the noun and it attaches to it, so it forms one word. And then in Norwegian you would say bilen. Bil is car and the en part at the end is the definite article. But, and this is the special thing that we call compositional definiteness, when you add an adjective in front of the noun, so you would say the nice car or the large car or the red car, Norwegian actually gets two article-like elements. So then in Norwegian, you, for the large car, you would say den store bilen. So we still have the en on car, which we always had when the phrase is definite, but we also get an article in front of the whole phrase. So den store bilen, when we have two article-like elements. And that is what we call compositional definiteness. And this is very tricky. I remember at the beginning when I started learning Norwegian myself. It's hard, right? Oh my God. And I make mistakes <sighs> with it too. And I know how it works. But when I speak Norwegian, it's difficult to use both articles. Absolutely. Um, because yes. there are a lot of things to remember. You have to remember this article at the beginning. And then you have to inflect the um, adjective. And yes. then you have to remember that there is this noun that has to be definite again. So... 
your brain is like, oh my God, how, how many things I need just to say the big car. It's just, you know, very tricky also for um, learners of Norwegian and just for people who have uh, as an heritage language. But um, when it comes to this specific phenomenon, um, um, what can we say about uh, native speakers? I mean, children of uh, that speaks Norwegian as their first language. Uh, how do they acquire this tricky uh, phenomenon? Uh, does it take time? Do they make mistake? Are they yes. fluent since the very beginning? I hope not because, oh my God, I don't want to feel stupid. No, you don't have to feel stupid because, well, children are hardly fluent in anything when they start learning a language, right? Um, and competitional deafness is particularly difficult for them. So actually it's um, the regular article that comes on the noun um, that is relatively easy for them. And actually Norwegian children seem to be a bit quicker with mastering just that than um, German and Dutch children are when they have to acquire the. But when it comes to compositional deafness, it's quite hard for children. So it takes them quite a couple of years. Um, there hasn't been that much research, but what I found out with combining sources, it looks like it's not until that children are six or seven years old that they actually have acquired to use both the first article that comes in front of the adjective and the one that comes on the noun. So that actually takes quite a while. And uh, what happens instead with uh, heritage speakers, because the situation is, is very different, they don't have uh, the chance to practice Norwegian outside, let's say, their community, and they're far away from the motherland. Um, so probably there will be some, fen this phenomenon could have been affected by, I don't know, English, for example, and then, um, I'm just hypothesizing here, uh, can be reduced, and then they lost the ability to use it, or instead they, they had the chance to maintain it because it's very peculiar. Um, what so, happens there? There is a lot, that, and there is a lot of questions in what you're asking me right now. So, um, first of all, it's definitely true that the American Norwegians, they have a lot less input in Norwegian, because they only get it from their family, not from everyone in the society. And, of course, they become bilingual, so they start using another language. Um, and then what we see is that um, even by the time that they're 70 or 80, when I meet them, they are not using compositional definiteness in the same way as monolingual speakers are. So what they tend to do is they forget about the first um, of the articles. So in Norway you would say den store bilen, the nice car, um, or the big car, sorry. But the heritage speakers tend to say store bilen. So they keep the article that we have on all nouns that are definite, and it's the specific one that you see in compositional definiteness, the what we call pre-nominal one, the one in the, uh, at the beginning, that one is dropped. And that is not that strange, because that is exactly the one that's difficult to learn for monolingual children. So this is something that's difficult when you grow up, even if all the input you get is Norwegian. So you can imagine that when some of the input that you get is Norwegian, but lots of input you get is in English, that it's specifically this article that's hard to acquire. But it's quite interesting because English only has an article at the beginning in front of the noun. Um, so maybe you would hypothesize if English had a lot of influence that the Norwegians would say, 
or the American Norwegians would say, den store bil, with only the article that looks like the English one, and not the Norwegian one that's attached to the noun. But that's actually not what we find, so that is quite rare. Um, it's, it's more typical to drop the pre-nominal article. And um, when it comes to gender, for example, Norwegian has three genders, we can say, or at least two, because um, they have the ability, let's say, to uh, clash, masculine and feminine, but let's, uh, let's give for granted that they have three genders. So is there a difference between the genders, so den and de, uh, masculine and, and, and neuter. neuter? Thank you. Um, is there, did you find uh, anything related to that? So I didn't specifically check um, the gender. I was just thinking if there is an article, then it's good, um, even if it's of the other gender than we would expect. And actually, what do you say? Most of the American Norwegians have some kind of a three gender system. Mm -hmm. There are some changes in the gender system, but at least their ancestors used to speak a system with three genders, and they all have at least traces of that. Um, but the omission of the article, so the lack of the, the first article, is so prevalent in American Norwegian that it doesn't seem to be the case that it's more frequent with one of the genders. It just happens across the board. Um, yeah. Okay, and <clears throat> of course we said before that you went to the United States to collect yes. your data. But um, what does it mean that you collected your data? What, what did you do? And um, what techniques uh, did you use? Can you, can you tell us uh, something about it? Yes, because this is actually the, the most fun part of doing research, right? Is that's not sitting in your office and thinking, but the coolest part is actually meeting the people who speak the language that you work with. Um, and I've had the opportunity to go to the US twice um, and then we travel around with an extra suitcase filled with microphones and cameras and batteries. Um, so this setting here for the podcast registration is absolutely your environment. You're, well, you're totally at ease. Yeah, usually I'm the one interviewing, not the <laughs> one being interviewed. But yeah, we have a microphone, we also use cameras and we sit down with speakers to record their language. Because if you really want to know how a language works, you want recordings. You don't just want to write down things that you think are interesting once you hear them, but you want to be able to hear them again and again and again. Um, but of course you have to think a bit about how am I going to get language from these people. So one thing you can do is do what we do now. We sit down and I interview them about their lives or about whatever they want to talk about. Then you get quite natural data because people can talk spontaneously. But it's a bit difficult if you know that there's one specific part of language that you're interested in, like I was. Because then you would have to think about how am I going to get a lot of examples of compositional definiteness. And that doesn't occur in every sentence. It's not like verbs or nouns that occur in every sentence. It's a very specific combination of a definite noun and an adjective. So then you have to be a bit creative. And I made some experiments or tasks um, that were specifically designed to elicit a lot of those constructions from our speakers. But of course, no one really likes to be tested on their language. It's not nice to have the idea that you're in school and someone is judging what you're doing. So I don't call this a task or a test, but we call it a language game. 
and then it's something fun that we do together. So one thing that we did was um, we wrote a story in English and then we asked our speakers to translate it. So I would read one sentence of the story in English and they would reply by saying the same sentence in Norwegian. And if you do it like that, you have a lot more control over what people are going to say and the type of grammatical constructions that they use than when you have a normal conversation. So I would make lots of sentences with the white horse, the red apples, the small children, etc. So that you get a lot of phrases that could have compositional definiteness. And um, that's that's very interesting. Um, how many people um, did you contact? How many people uh, did you test, let's say? Yes, so how many people were part of my study? Um, in total for my dissertation, I used um, interviews and recordings and tests with uh, 20 speakers of American Norwegian. And luckily I didn't have to find them all by myself because I was part of a larger project um, and um, my advisor or my supervisor had been in touch with those people for several years. So she has made several trips to the United States and I could meet people that she had met before. Um, and on the first trip that I went to the US, we were five researchers. And of course, we can't have five researchers interviewing one person at the time. That would be a bit too intense. Um, I like it like this, but if it had been five of you interviewing me, it would have been a bit scary. So Definitely. then we met, um, in total, I've met around 60 speakers, but I recorded 20 of them for my research. Okay, thank you very much. Well, um, before um, letting you go, uh, there is just one uh, final question that I would like to ask you. It's quite a recurrent uh, question for us uh, studying linguistics, you know. Uh, at least this, this is happening a lot um, with me. When I say that I, that I do linguistics, uh, people um, react with a strange uh, face and they say, ah, oh, okay, but how many languages do you speak? And yeah, very familiar question, <laughs> okay. yes. And I'm like, you know, I'm torn because I don't know what to answer because clearly linguistics is not just knowing languages in the sense of being able to speak a language, but it's something deeper if we, um, if you want. So, not in two minutes, but in less than one minute, becoming uh, stricter and stricter. If you hear someone telling you, uh, oh, you do linguistics, how many languages do you speak? How do you answer to make them understand what is linguistics? Less than one minute to you. Yeah, so in the same way, I think mathematics is not about knowing numbers, but it's about knowing how all those numbers behave in a larger system. Linguistics is not about knowing many different languages or one language in particular, but it's about the phenomenon that's behind language. So what do languages have in common? How do they differ? What is it? that is human language. What do we have in our brain or what do we know when we know human language? Not just French or Italian or Dutch or Norwegian, but what do all those languages have in common? And what does it mean to have language knowledge? And you can study languages that you don't know. And both of us probably experienced that being a linguist doesn't make it easier to learn a new language. Absolutely Even though we not. can understand the principles behind it a bit better, putting it into use is something different. So it's not knowing languages, it's knowing language, with a capital L, if you like. 
perfect answer, absolutely perfect answer. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. It has been uh, um, very interesting hearing about um, heritage speakers and having like a personal PhD defense that I couldn't attend. So thanks again. And um, thank you everybody uh, for um, having um, participated, let's say, um, in this first podcast. And um, see you next time. Bye-bye.